if you're setting up an LLC for just yourself, if you're the only owner, that's probably a reasonably safe setup for yourself through LegalZoom. It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by Ecospace.com. Now here's your hosts, Adam and Jason. All right, we're back on the Creative Real Estate Podcast. I'm your co-host, Jason J. Lou Lewis. And today we have Stan, the man of Doida Crow Legal. I'm excited for this one as legal is one of those items that's not the super sexiest of the items. It's kind of like insurance, but it's one of those, if you don't have it, you don't know the ins and outs and you don't have a point of contact before you jump in the real estate game in either of those fields, it can devastate you more so than probably any other aspect of real estate. So just a little disclaimer, Stan does our legal documents for our syndications and our new builds. So I just want to put that out there. He's here in Denver, a local group, and I've known him for quite some time. So just want to put that out there that he is our point of contact, but hopefully today we can get some general information that's out there that can help you, whether you're here local or out of state and make sure that you are covered and in the best position possible, whether you're doing your first deal or your 50th deal. So Stan, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Jason. Yeah. Glad to be here. Good well, to see you. Yeah, same to you. It's last time we kind of chatted, you were with your own firm. You made a big mm-hmm. big move here this year with converging or partnering, I guess. Yeah, with- yeah merging, yeah. So. Yeah, my, my new partner, Trevor Crow. Yeah, if you yeah. don't mind, I'll t- tell you just a little bit about the firm and then, yeah, uh, and then let's happy do it. To kind of dive in. Yeah, so the firm is now Doida Crow Legal. We got six attorneys. We specialize in working with entrepreneurs in growth phases and financing phases and MA, buying and selling company phases. So, a good in Colorado, as you know, Jason, real estate makes up a pretty big component of the overall economy here. So, during the course of our firm's life. We've worked with a lot of real estate folks, both developers. Maybe they're just fixing and flipping something. Maybe they're holding for a long-term rental play. Maybe they're building a a real estate empire for themselves. But those are all good projects for us from the corporate standpoint. We don't do a whole lot of the, the title work and all that sort of stuff, but more the corporate formation, the partnership agreements, making sure that you're kind of dotting your I's and crossing your T's when you're taking investor money. And that's something we'll talk about a little bit more today. Yeah, that's great. I know uh, Trevor used to have a podcast, if I remember right, a few years yeah. back, maybe like yeah, five I, or 10 years. I think it was like at the beginning of podcasts and then they kind of went out of style and they now have come back to style. I think he was one of the OGs in that first, first wave. We're looking at bringing it back. So, hey. so hopefully, hopefully it'll all come back. Yeah. And our firm, whenever we can, you know, we do take a little bit of a different approach to, you know, working with clients whenever possible. We try to do things on fixed fees. I think clients have always hated the billable hour, but haven't really been given too many choices on that. And, you know, internally, I think the lawyers sort of unnecessarily benefit from their own, not ever creating efficiencies rather in their own business. And we just kind of looked at it different. We don't really look at it as uh, clients are paying us for our time. They're paying us for our counsel, our experience, our deliverables, and that value is not necessarily tied to the time it takes. So whenever we can, we do that. We're probably at about 40% 
fixed fees right now and uh, with the hope that one day we'll be 100%. But yeah, a little different model for us. Yeah, let's dive in that real quick because we see this on the Facebook groups, investor groups that they'll post, mm -hmm. how do I set up an LLC? What should it cost? And a lot of people go and just share, hey, go to the state website. You can sign mm -hmm. up and, and do that mm -hmm. for your $50 fee. And then others will say, hey, here's a flat fee lawyer. And hey, here's a yep. lawyer that will do it hourly. So what would be just a, a few seconds of yeah. kind of that intro of what someone who's never done it, what, what are their options? What should they look for and look out for? Yeah. Well, first and foremost, you definitely want to be doing your, you know, holding your properties through an entity like that, most likely an LLC unless there's really good reason to kind of commingle two properties into one LLC, you probably want individual properties and eat in the separate LLCs to sort of cross shield them from each other. You know, creditor of LLC one only has recourse against the assets within LLC one, assuming you're conducting business correctly. They can't get to the asset in LLC two without some fraud or mis malfeasance by the owners. So it's very easy to do. If you're setting up an LLC for just yourself, if you're the only owner, that's probably a reasonably safe setup for yourself or through LegalZoom. Colorado, as you know, Jason, is like just one of the easiest states to do this in. You can you know, pop in online, fill out the form online, pay the 50 bucks and you're done. Whereas, you know, setting up a Delaware LLC is a little bit bigger of an undertaking. So Depending on what state you're in and how good your secretary of state services are, it can be very easy to set up your own entity. I think if you live in Colorado, that's a pretty easy task to do. You know, we're, we're glad to help the folks with single owner entity. It's very easy and routine for us. And it's sometimes, you know, if the client is capable or and doesn't, you know, want to do any of the work themselves, they just want to offload it. Sure, that's a great fit for us, but. Other times I'm steering that person just, hey, listen, you can do this yourself. There's not a whole lot of ways to mess this up. Now, if you have a partner, that totally changes the entire story. If you have a partner who has a tenth of a percent in the entity, particularly here in Colorado, I think that's a situation where you need to get a qualified lawyer involved. You're going to need a partnership agreement. And my experience says that the legal Zoom type of solution is not going to suffice. Without a good operating agreement or without an operating agreement at all, the statutes of the state that you're operating in are going to apply. And in Colorado, that can be that can lead to some harsh outcomes. You know, majority in a two-person partnership with one guy holding 99% and the other one holding 1%, that 1% suddenly has veto rights over certain decisions. And that's you're saying, probably you're saying without a formal without an operating agreement. Okay. Yeah, correct. Okay. The statutes in some instances will say you need to have majority of the members or all the members to consent to something like that absent an operating agreement. And that's a dangerous situation. You know, this is a non-real estate horror story, but it's an LLC operating agreement horror story. I had a client who was, you know, selling their business. And, you know, years ago, years prior to this, they brought on a key employee for 5% of the company and they downloaded an operating agreement from LegalZoom. Lo and behold, that operating agreement said that to sell the business, you need unanimous consent of the members. And years prior to the sale, the employee in the company had a falling out. They never cleaned up his issuance, so he still hold, held those. You can guess what happens five years down the road when 
you need to sell and the buyer says, Hey, you got to get the consent of your other partner. You can imagine some bad things that happen in yeah, that one. And that's sure. one, you know, one, maybe you can't find them. And I yeah. know that was an issue for him. And then the, the second issue that came up was he got greedy, started oh, sure. asking for more, right? Yeah. Well, He's got, I mean, holding your feet to the fire. For sure. It's kind of like in the real estate world, it's, there's a lease in place and you need that tenant out. You kind of just got to cash for keys, you know, type yeah, thing. Yeah. So, and you got to pay up if, if you don't have a, yeah. uh, you know, good situation there. So I'm guessing they had to kind of cash for keys it for the signature. Yeah. So, yeah. And so, you know, that's obviously just, that's an easy problem to deal with upfront. I mean, no good practitioner is going to tell you that, you know, a 95% holder should be held up by something like that. So, yeah. So anyways, whenever you have a partner, I think it's always a situation to get a lawyer involved, do an operating agreement, right? You know, operating agreements through a good lawyer, you know, we fix fee those and it doesn't have to break the bank. A guy like you, Jason, who's worked with us numerous times, you've gone into numerous different partnerships. You know, our experience is the first lift is the heavy lift because we have to kind of get to know the client, get to know what their preferences are, get to know how they do business. And then when you do operating agreements, two, three, four, five with, you know, different partners or the same partners, the marginal cost goes, you know, down significantly. So I think there's value, particularly in anybody who's going to do this more than once, maybe get the bug for it and say, hey, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to keep parlaying this. I'm going to keep buying properties. I'm going to keep flipping properties. I'm going to keep renting properties, whatever it is. But it's probably a good opportunity before you get too deep in this to develop a relationship with a good lawyer that can help you through some of these issues. Yeah, that was one of my mentors said the same thing and made the ironic connection to you and we had actually <laughs> known each other. So it, it worked out. It was, it was a little easier for me to bite into it and, and commit to it and trust the process and the money versus just do it myself when... I've been referred to you um, through, yeah. through mentors. So that's maybe a recommendation uh, that I'd have out there is literally just ask around, yeah. ask your, yeah. your network. And there'll be someone who's like, this is someone that I trust. And, and then I think that probably even helps you, the lawyer, know kind of who that person is and the style of kind of who referred them, you know, sure. because if they're sure. running in that same circle, it's sure. the same mentality a lot of times. So uh, but yeah. So then speaking to the third, fourth, fifth times easier is I was able to reach out to Vaughn last week out of the blue, got a wholesaler called and said, Hey, got a three duplex scrape, which will be three single family million dollar homes. And I needed to raise 800 K of capital and put together a whole new LLC. And I think three days or something like that. And, yeah. and we were able to just to pull up the Cherokee trio. Cause this is a rhino trio. It's a three unit and just, tweak a few and rock yep. and rolling. So, yeah. And I, I think for those who don't have a relationship with a lawyer, you know, yeah, get connect with your network, see who people like interview a couple. Don't, you don't have to go with the first one, but you know, make sure you find somebody that approaches business the way you want them to. Cause lawyers have different styles. You know, some are very, some are very risk averse. Some talk from, you know, what I call the ivory tower and it's gotta be all buttoned up. You know, meanwhile, I'm an entrepreneur as well. You know, I started my own business and, and I know that nothing comes risk-free and there's no sure. way to get rid of every potential risk. And so to me and my style, it's really making sure the entrepreneur understands what risks they're taking and whether they're comfortable with those risks. Because at the end of the day, 
there's going to be risk on the table and you got to just kind of manage it, navigate it, understand it, either avoid it or get comfortable with it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, anything you buy, anything you do, whether you're just buying into a syndication and putting you know, yeah. a few bucks, then you're, yeah. you're at least a few bucks are on the table. So there's a risk oh, yeah. at least using that, even if you aren't signing up or you're not a partner or you're not signing on the debt or guarantor or anything. So yep. I see another question that gets brought up a ton is, you know, how you structure if you're doing individual LLCs for each property. And I know mm-hmm. some people will roll them up under like yeah. one LLC company. And yeah. then others will individual LLCs, even if it's wholly owned themselves and it's just a $50,000 rental. Is there any price point or scenarios where you kind of tell people on how to structure LLCs? Um, so if you have, you know, 10 properties and they're all wholly owned single member entities, whether you do it, kind of funnel it through a holding company might be kind of up to your own personal accounting preferences. You know, if you want to have kind of a consolidated balance sheet and income statement showing all of your income and balance sheet activities from real estate activities, that might be a reason to do it. But when it's wholly owned like that, they're probably taxed as what's called disregarded entities, which means you don't have to file an individual tax return for those entities. They just roll on and aggregate onto your Schedule C on your 1040 on your individual tax return. So I think either way, from a legal perspective works, I think some people like the organization of parent subsidiary consolidated financial statements. So I think that's kind of a preference. I think that there comes a point too, if you have a large enough bucket of assets that you, know, you probably might start coordinating some of your ownership through your estate planning packages like you know trusts and stuff like that. But you know, if it's just simple and you're just owning it outright, I don't know that there's a significant legal difference between those two scenarios, having a holding company and not having a holding company. Yeah. I think what I had done is I had one LLC because people told me when I got started 15 years ago is there's kind of like to make it worth it, you need like a couple million dollars to like your risk factor. Again, everyone, there's 8 million different scenarios. So I'm like, okay, well, that makes sense. You know, buying a $100,000 house, I don't need an LLC for each one. And then, so once it got to be large enough, then someone recommended just rolling it up into mm. each get individual LLCs and rolling it up. But then I know I had some issues with the EIN and getting like bank accounts and some stuff at the beginning. So it was one of those that why well, I share this is I didn't ask a lawyer what I should have done. Back then I asked and I did the LLC myself and I just had one LLC and bought everything as, as it was under that LLC. LLC, Then down the road, when there's 10 or 12 properties, it became a little more difficult to unwind. So yeah, for sure. I still, honestly, I still, there's third (laughs) Avenue in Denver. I don't really know where or how that's structured because I know there's some EIN issue with the bank or the IRS because they think it's its own LLC, but it's rolled up and who knows? So mm-hmm. it's uh, so I might have to actually remind you ping about that one offline yeah. at some point. Yeah, so. definitely, definitely buy you know unrelated assets in unrelated in different LLCs for sure. Yeah, that, that's yeah. I think a pretty blanket rule that will, will yeah. serve everybody well. Yeah, and then what are just some other just tips? I mean, yeah, yeah. So we talked a little bit about partnership agreement. Partnership agreement, you definitely want to take care of that stuff. The -the run-of-the-mill partnership agreements is only going to talk about how the business is operated or how the property is operated, how it's how you're in and out of the property, whatever. But 
there's a lot of stuff that should also be built into there. You know, what happens if partner A dies? What happens if part, you know, what if you guys are contributing services to this project and partner B stops showing up to work? These are all things that I think, you know, a thorough operating agreement partnership process will go through. And again, like I said, that first time might be the heaviest lift. And after that, it will get easier and easier. The other thing I wanted to really kind of stress, because I think a lot of people don't realize it, it's just, you know, what we call ignorance of the law, is that, you know, taking on investors for your project is usually selling securities. And when you're selling securities, a whole bunch of rules apply, a whole bunch of liability starts to risk and liability starts to appear that I think uninformed entrepreneurs had no idea about. So let me just break it down a little bit for you. I don't want to go too deep into it because there's a lot of different technical rules. And But I'll give you the major rule. The major rule is what we call 506B and 99.9% of capital is raised using this rule. There are other rules, but this rule in particular says that you can raise an unlimited amount of money from an unlimited number of accredited investors. In that particular offering, you can't use general solicitations. You can't post things on Facebook. You can't blanket bomb your entire email contact trying to raise money. You have to be a little bit more targeted about it. There's other ways to get around that through different rules, but this is the main rule. When you're selling securities, you as the officer, director, the the principal, the promoter, whatever you call yourself, have some obligations. And, and one of those is to make sure that you're disclosing all material information that a reasonable investor would want to know. And there's no method that is prescribed for how to do that. So you can do that through your meetings, your emails, your phone calls, sharing of data rooms, whatever. You can do that through your pitches. You can also do that through written disclosures, what you might see as a private placement memorandum or a confidential information memorandum, something like that. I see a lot um, of the PP, PPMs. And, and, yeah, and, uh, private placement see, memorandum. And you'll see that a lot when people will make comments. So if any newer real estate investors are wanting to get into that, you see PPM, that's a private placement yeah, memorandum. And if, so. if you go to my website, doitacrow.com backslash blog, we've written about some of these rules, some of the PPMs, just so you can kind of educate yourself more. There's tons more information there on my website. So, you know, making sure that they know, you know, one, how they're structuring their offering, two, how they're going to comply with these obligations. I always tell people PPM is the best mitigation risk tool. It's sure. dated. It says, here's what we disclosed to you. It's all in writing. The alternative, while legal, leads to situations where if an investor sues, it becomes a he said, she said battle. It becomes, let's go through all the emails and see what was said. Let's go through what your, the deposition of what you remember about that one meeting that you had with the promoter and all that sort of stuff is. That can be a messy, messy yeah, situation. That's when the, it should or it could raise this much or not raise, but return this much. Correct. You know, those one word, that one word that you said (laughs) it should versus it may or whatever that, and you're now you're on the hook for that Delta, you know? Yeah. Uh, So, well, what's one thing, because we were talking about if you're the kind of promoter, the GP, the general partner, 
But a lot of times people are right now, they're really interested in real estate, but they're a full-time doctor or they're, you know, they uh-huh. have their small business and they're wanting to invest in others. What would be to few little tips for someone who's investing in someone else's deal to look out for from a legal oh, yeah. standpoint? Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, before we leave that topic, I yeah. want to just add one last thing. And that is the other thing that principals promoters don't realize is that when you're selling securities, that brings personal liability to yourself. So when there's a securities fraud claim or a misrepresentation claim, it's not made against the entity. It's made against the promoter. So you don't get to hide behind the LLC limited liability shield in those situations. And so it's always a much higher risk scenario. Now to get to your question, what should an investor look yeah, you for? See in a deal? You see what people are doing online, illegally doing what you said they kind of should oh, yeah. be is, is promoting yeah. and they're blanket promoting on Facebook. I got a new deal, guys. You know, call me if you want to invest. Yeah. I got a yeah. multifamily deal. And now there's like three layers of like GP. There's like the social media guy who's really just getting the eyeballs. And then there's yeah. the middle person who's kind of running. Then there's the person who found the deal originally. So there's like three layers of like syndicators. Yeah. And then someone simply just wants to invest twenty five or $50,000 sure. into what they think is a sexy mobile home park or right. apartment. Right. What tips should they look yeah. for? Yeah. Well, so, you know, I guess we should hold the principals somewhat accountable for the fact that they're not even like cognizant of the law on yeah. what they're doing. I, th- right? I think so, a lot are, but that social media is such no. a powerful tool. They're just like blind eye. Yeah. Sure. Oh, sure. Oh, well, and, and again, you, you know, called whether- me out even on one, I think three or four years ago, you're, you, I got, <laughs> I was riding to golden Colorado on my road bike. And I remember pulling off on the parking lot of the Coors plant manufacturer plant. Cause you called me. I was like, Oh shoot. He's calling me like seven at night. And you're like, delete, delete, delete. So <laughs> I think that was on like, actually, like speaking of Cherokee Trio, I think that was a three unit new build development spec project. And you're like, delete that now. So I was like, oops. (laughs) Well, and and just like that instance, right? I mean, the method by which a principal has gone to solicit money may not indicate whether or not it's a good or bad deal, right? It just might indicate their ignorance of the law. So, you know, when it comes to the deal, I think the devil is in the details. I think you need to, as an investor, if I were investing in something, and again, I'm experienced in the sense that I've written, read hundreds of these things at this point in my career. And for me, I would want to, the governing body of this investment is probably going to be in the operating agreement. And so I personally, as an investor, passive investor, I would want to study that operating agreement. I would want to make sure that the, the money is coming out the way that it's been represented to me. I would want to know that you know there's not these potentials for abuse by the manager to do certain things, to change the agreement, to modify what they're doing. Or I would want to get a comfort for that, especially if I've never done business with the person before. You know, again, once you've invested with somebody four or five times, you get a style from them. Maybe you can give them that leash and say, "Oh, I know Jason. Jason's a good guy. He's going to do what's right for the property and for the investment." But you know, if it's your first time, you don't have a lot of trust in the person because it's just haven't had the track record. I think the devil is in the details on the operating agreement. Do, and that's do you not recommend just a, someone to, because again, that, that they might not know the details, you know? So yeah. if you're a new investor and you're doing an LP that, you know, limited partner where you're just investing capital, you might not know what those details look for. Yeah. So is there anything that like you'd recommend someone to 
learn? I mean, is that something you guys have on a, on a blog or, or do they hire that's, a lawyer? Yeah, that's to, probably, like, that's probably something that just comes with experience. Okay. And so, you know, like I just did this for somebody else. It wasn't in a real estate deal, but they're becoming a partner in a, in a new deal and they're coming, becoming a minority partner. And they sent me all their documents. And so I read through everything with the understanding of the client situation that he doesn't have a whole lot of bargaining leverage to change the agreement. Yeah, so it's more my of a yes job, or a no. Yes, exactly. And so my job was to highlight risk points, to highlight things that I didn't think were clear, to highlight places where I thought a bad actor could abuse something and then show them that and say, hey, do you want to get some comfort around this with them? Talk to them. Maybe there's, maybe they will issue you some amendments around some of this stuff to provide you clarity and maybe they won't. But in that process, you can understand the risks and you can understand your comfort level with those risks. And you can understand what the principal is going to tell you about how they've approached that in the past or whatever. But I think that's how you get it. I think you get somebody who with a trained eye and eventually you might get that trained eye. If you read 15, 20 of these and you know what you're looking for and what the things that really you can't stand or that last deal you got burned on, you know, how you got burned, you're going to remember that. That scar is going to stick with you. And you're going to remember that when you, when you look at your next deal. So, and that's usually a pretty small engagement, you know, to say, Hey, read this operating agreement. I'm going to put in 25 grand. What are the pitfalls here? You know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I think it's beneficial to, to get to be as knowledgeable about that, those agreements as possible, simply because if you're wanting to be an LP and you're a doctor, then you're going to be seeing a lot of those. And then if you ultimately, where you want to be is be a GP, then you'll get to the point where you'll be wanting to document those yourself. So here's the thing, guys, normally we do a final five. We have one minute before Stan being an important guy, he is needs to hop off. So we're going to wrap up this episode without the final five. But Stan, what do you got for one random life tip? Let's do a random fun thing. What's one life tip that a real estate investor should know from Stan, the man? One life tip, huh? One life tip. Well, I will say this. I've worked with entrepreneurs that have run the gamut in different industries, different products, everything. And I will tell you that the clients that have become or, or are wealthy have either done through an anomalistic company where it grew like crazy and, but to an anomalistic proportion and an anomalistic probable outcome. So not highly replicatable and the others own real estate. So (laughs) I like it. So whatever that means to you, keep doing it. And I think that's the only thing other than, I guess, these coins, well, they're making more coins, but uh, they don't make more real estate. So that's a good thing, I think, in, in your favor. I like it. Well, Stan, I really appreciate it. We'll, uh, well, yeah, like thank you, you Jason. I'm sorry. Time. I couldn't, yeah, no, no, no. sorry. I couldn't no, no. finish it out. No, this is good. I, and uh, I think I'd like to have you on in the future and, and maybe even dive into just operating agreement, you know, yeah, and be great. just from an LP standpoint. So, all right, Sounds guys, great. until next time, as always, think outside the box. Thank you so much for listening to the creative real estate podcast. And if you got value from this episode of the podcast, please take the time to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Give us a written rating and a review. We'd really, really appreciate it. I'm going to let you go, but until next time, think outside the box.